Welcome to our annual EO ESOP podcast summer school series. We selected some of our favorite episodes over the past year to bring you for your enjoyment while we spend the rest of our summer catching our breath and working on launching our exciting season seven beginning in September 2023. Enjoy. Welcome to the EO Podcast with Brett Keasley, part of the EO Podcast Network. Hello, my friends. Thanks for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. In March of 2023, on Minicast episode 219, I shared with you my take on a great book, Becoming Trader Joe's. The book featured the life story of Joe Coulomb and how he started out in a career in business and ended up growing the Trader Joe's chain. It was co-written by Patty Civilleri, and I am so delighted to welcome on the podcast to talk about Joe and the book and some other stuff, Patty Civilleri. Patty, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Brett. Thank you for having me today. So we are going to talk about Joe himself. We're going to talk a little bit about the book and the process and, and that sort of thing. And then you also do a lot in the travel sector and you have books on specifically Italy as your focus. So I'm hoping that you're going to stick around and tell us about that as well. And let me just tee up for the listeners, Patty. This is not the usual employee ownership episode where we're filling in lots of stuff about employee ownership. The connection to the book, and it, it covered maybe a page and a half total throughout the book, is that Joe was on the path to becoming employee-owned. And for valuation reasons that I got as a trustee, he wasn't able to put a transaction together. But it was such an amazing, well-written business book. I'm someone who just happens. I've started seven businesses in my life. The wow. first one, I was 15 years old. And for anyone who's just looking for a cool business success story and a little bit of a primer on how to do this, you've come up with an absolutely great book. Thank you so much. Wow. Well, what a sweet thing to say. I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Enjoyed it very much. Enjoyed how it was written. And let's just get the one disclaimer out of the way. The book, which, by the way, is still ranking on Amazon, and there are other places that you can get the book, but it's still ranking on Amazon some two years afterwards. But we'll just get the disclaimer out. The book and you and your efforts have nothing to do with Trader Joe's, the company. Joe actually sold his shares, as I understand, in the late 70s and then left the company completely in the late 80s. So this is a labor of love about the man, not the company. Well, kind of both, I guess. <laughs> well, no, well, not the company today, I should have said. But definitely the man. So I had assumed you as the co-author that you know, you were a writer and somehow you were made the introduction to co-write this book, but you've actually known him for quite a while prior to the writing of the book. Am I correct? Yes. And that's why they came to me because they knew I was already in the writing and publishing business. So it seems to be a very good fit. And I had the sense that as I was reading the book, it was just so approachable, if that's the right word, you know, I mean, he talked about very important business concepts and there's all kinds of stuff that, that is, is hands-on business stuff about distribution cycles and manufacturing relationships and that kind of thing. But it was really, it wasn't a technical book at all. It was really the people and the personalities. Do you think that the book does a great job of capturing Joe's voice itself? Yes. And the reason for that is because the book came from Joe's journals. So you are hearing him 
his words and I can hear his voice whenever I go through the book. So really, you know, so many of his own words, you know, fill the entire book and it's wonderful. Uh, he was really a, a genius. The people that worked with him and for him were convinced that A, he was a genius, a certifiable genius, and that B, he had a photographic memory. He was extremely well-read. He read everything. And as you might have noticed in the book, there's a lot of quotes to, you know, a lot of books, whether they were business books or philosophy or, you know, old authors or poets. Joe read all of that and he remembered everything. The other side of his brain was kind of neat because he was an artist. So everything he took in that he read, that he learned, everything in the world, he sort of you know, when you when you would sit next to him and hear him talk, you'd see him look up and you, you could see that, God, if I did a movie about this, it would be, you know, I would show sort of the things coming together in his head visually because that's what he saw. He was an artist. One day we went to a funeral. We sat next to each other at a funeral and it was in a Japanese temple. And a Japanese funeral can take the bulk of a day. And, you know, for, for four to six hours, sitting in a hard pew is kind of difficult. And we sat there and Joe brought a sketchbook with him and he just would start, he'd go across the page and he'd sketch something. And then he'd add something on top of that. And on top of that, you know, everything with a, you know, a charcoal pencil. And when he was finished, he had the most beautiful representation of this gorgeous Japanese altar in the front of this temple. I, you know, and I and I really liked seeing that instead of drawing individual things, he did everything layer upon layer. And it was, I guess that is kind of sort of a little window into his mind and how he sees the world. He sort of, everything comes together as he adds the layers to it. And he had the ability to, you know, to see the future. And I don't know how to say that without that sounding really weird. I've talked to his former vice presidents, some of his former presidents, and they're all pretty convinced he could see the future. And that when he would give a public speech, everybody was always lost because he was always talking about things four to five years before they happened. And then as the world would unfold, people were saying, oh, my God, Joe said that years ago. And that's a real common way that people remember him. What a lovely individual. Brilliant. It certainly sounds like that. And the visionary aspects that you refer to where he could see the future, that really comes into play throughout the book. And yes, I appreciated yes. the references and whatnot. But, you know, at heart, I've, I've always been an entrepreneur. And some of the things that stuck out is going back to the 50s, he, he got ownership of just a handful of stores under a different name. And he saw the Southland Corporation coming when Southland at that point was 7-Eleven. And that led to, you know, was it necessity is the mother of invention? Yes, indeed. A Frank Zappa quote at you, perhaps. <laughs> but he said, wow, for all kinds of competitive reasons, 7-Eleven could clean the clocks of the previous chain because they were kind of the same thing. And that led to the vision of coming up with, with Trader Joe's. So going yes. back to the 50s, you know, the the apparently he just always had a knack for it. You know, and it, and it's really interesting. You're absolutely right on there. And there's there's certain things that he saw, how he identified his market. He saw that the VA, you know, post-World War II, he saw that that all of these veterans were, they, they were allowed to go to college. You know, they were getting stipends for going to college. And, and so suddenly, all of these people were coming out with a college degree, which 
didn't exist before. He saw that Boeing was launching, Boeing had just announced the launch of the first 747, which brought global travel to Main Street. And of course, who, who were the people buying global traveling? It's these college educated people. He defined his marketplace as the overeducated, underpaid. And he used that reference a lot throughout the book, you know, throughout his whole story. But that was the identification of his market, the overeducated and underpaid. We call them now the middle class, right? But that term back in the 50s didn't exist. There was no middle class before there was college education, right? So he saw this as being a whole new population of intelligent, educated people that were going to want more than they could get from their typical grocery store. So let's talk for a moment about the grocery store and how you would characterize that. And the reason that I'm saying it is I had no idea about Trader Joe's. And I actually coincidentally, in December of 2022, just four or five months ago, went to Trader Joe's because I wanted to get Christmas gifts for a friend of mine. And I thought mm -hmm. that her vibe, a lot of her vibe, the Traders Joe would do it. And I'll be honest with you, and, and I'm just going to be honest about my social anxiety and my ADHD. I went in and there were so many different variety of things that I couldn't really process. So it might have started in the convenience store store chain, but it's it had a real boutique feel for me. By the way, got a gift certificate, gave it to my friend. She absolutely loved it and and shared shared that she really enjoyed using that. But then one of my team members recommended your book to me and I read it and I knew I was going to do the mini cast. I thought I at least have to stop by Trader Joe's and get it now. And I really got it. They what Joe did was take a lot of basic products that were in every sort of a supermarket. And he brought a lot of really interesting flips to them, varieties or sourced differently. Am I saying that right? I mean, just really cool stuff that stems from pretty basic stuff. Yeah, the, his mantra, the main thing that drove him every day was one word, differentiation, right? So, you know, when you're in a grocery store, how do you differentiate stuff that everybody carries in grocery stores, right? You know, especially back in the, in the, 60s and 70s and 80s, so much of everything was, you know, controlled by the government and very limited and, you know, just very regulated. As an example, all dairy products were were regulated. And his customers were saying, Joe, you've got to carry, you know, eggs. And Joe's like, I don't want to carry eggs. I don't want to carry eggs because they're regulated. And there's nothing about me carrying eggs that can be any different than the way anybody else carries eggs. He had this concept that everything in his store had to be different. So he, Joe being the researcher and the homework guy that he was, he went and found a farmer who had eggs that were different and they were square. Just kidding. You actually, <laughs> if people have been able to see my face, we're recording this over Zoom. I love I your went, face. I thought they were brown eggs and you said square <laughs> and I was like, oh. No, I they weren't brown eggs and they weren't square eggs, but I did love your face. Thank you. Well um, played, Patty, well played. No, the eggs, what he, what he found out is he found a farmer that had extra large eggs. Extra large eggs were not produced you know, in high volume anywhere in the country, which meant that all stores, remember in a regulated environment, everybody has to carry the same eggs. So they have to have eggs 
that are that have enough supply to supply all of the grocery stores. So the whole world carried what we call today medium eggs, and they sold them. They sold them all in boxes of a dozen, and they sold them all at a certain price. And on Saturday morning, they would take twenty-one cents off the carton of eggs, and that's when my mom would go out on Saturday mornings and do the shopping. But Joe found these extra large eggs, and he said, "Hey, Mister Farmer." do you have enough eggs that you can supply me with these eggs and all my stores? And the farmer says, sure enough. And they shook on it because that's what Joe did is he shook on everything. And he was a handshake and a hug kind of guy. And so he was able to carry extra large eggs, which were not regulated because there was no regulation on extra large eggs. So he was able to carry them at, at the same price and sometimes slightly less than what the grocery stores were selling medium-sized eggs for. So that was his way of differentiating. So what he did, and this is probably the biggest takeaway for me as a business person, what he did is he came up with what he called his four pillars of differentiation. And he decided that every product on the shelf had to be differentiated in at least one of these four ways. So now if any of your audience is out there and they have their own business, it's, differentiation is really important, but a lot of people don't understand how to differentiate. And Joe lays this out very clearly, and I'll lay it out for you and your listeners right now. Basically, the most obvious way you can differentiate a product is on price, right? But Joe didn't want to just go around cutting prices on everything that everybody else carried because he didn't want that sort of, you know, 99 cent store reputation. He just didn't want to be the cheap guy on the block. What he wanted is he wanted to find ways to give value to the product. So he had, so the first way is price. The second way is quantity, quantity, right? So instead of a 50 pound bag of rice, he was thinking, well, gee, people are now getting apartments. Apartments are getting real popular. Kitchens are real small. People don't have big houses and cellars that they could store big bags of flour, big bags of rice. What if I sell them in little, you know, buy them once a week sizes? So quantity and then packaging, of course. And as you know, he ended up changing packaging on pretty much everything they carry. And one of the things he says in the book is, you know, you can hide a myriad of secrets behind, you know, private label. And he says that, you know, it keeps the, it keeps the competition at bay because they don't really know who you bought it from. So they don't know how much you paid. So if your quantities are different, the packaging is different. Nobody really knows who you bought it from, right? So that's the second way. The third way is ingredients. If he can change the ingredients. At that time, the hippie, what he called the hippy-dippy era was starting to come into play. And people were starting to not want pesticides in their foods. And they wanted things that were organic. And they wanted things that were farm grown. And sort of that, you know, the early days of farm to table concept. But, you know, hormones and steroids and all the things that are in foods, he wanted to start doing away with those kinds of ingredients. So he would have his vendors repackage a number of foods for him and re recook some of the foods for him for his stores. And the four, so we have pricing, we have packaging and quantity, we have ingredients. And the fourth way was uniqueness. What can he go out into the world? What send his buyers out into the world and find products from the world, bread, cereals, beers, whatever it is, find products that are made different, that are different cultures, bring them back and 
let's let's put the Trader Joe's spin on the way they're packaged. And so that was his way of, of differentiating and at the same time bringing value. And because he cut out the middleman, he was able to bring the prices down. So the the what he's been known for and what the company has been known for all these years is really high quality, freshness, and excellent value. When I went in both times in the last four or five months, I was surprised I really had misunderstood what Trader Joe's was all about. The mm -hmm. value very much is still there. You yes. know, I kind of had it in my mind, trendy and boutique-y and, and put with that that it's expensive and that wasn't the case at all the things are are relatively speaking great value for what they're doing and you still have much of that vibe i love there's another big example where joe seems like he could be a little bit feisty when it came to regulation and you mentioned finding the extra large eggs and another example that really tied to the futures was wines were heavily regulated in california and the way he handled that became such a major part of Trader Joe's success in the 70s. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I could probably sum it up real quick for you. Uh, well, let's see, what did he say? What he did is, is he looked at the regulation, the regulatory laws on wine, and he couldn't even bring wine in from Oregon to California because it, that was considered importing. He had uh, to buy it from a distributor, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it had to be an importer. You know, California was very unique, which California is still kind of, I, right. I'll, I'll say unique. And so I, so what he did is he took his, his lawyers, his team of lawyers and just, just had him sit down with, you know, with the regulations and, and find something. And he popped up one day. I mean, in the book, I just love what he said in the book. He says, we found a loophole in the law and by God, we drove a truck through it. I loved it that. He became an importer, as I recall, and yes. he started up and that was the the, the step that, and, and there was a little bit of shenanigans. I understand there was an anecdote or two about inspectors coming and they didn't say, you know, they didn't give the whole picture to the inspectors of what was going on. But he crafted a tremendously valuable business by breaking through the wine regulations. And again, as we talk about it today, it seems absurd that you couldn't buy Oregon wine in California, but Pennsylvania, where I'm based, is still heavily regulated, you know, and, and I quit drinking 30 years ago, so it's been kind of my off my radar, but I think it's only been about 10 or 15 years where Pennsylvanians could, could buy wine from other states directly. Right without going through the Commonwealth. So so he, again, is just another example. He was 40 years ahead of where society was going. You know, he did another one like that. You know, his customers kept wanting him to bring in varieties of cheese. And of course, cheeses were regulated, part of the dairy industry. And so he said, you know, he had one guy who was his first employee back when he when it was the first chain called Pronto Markets. And this guy's name is Leroy Watson. And I just had dinner with Leroy last night. You know, we turned Leroy 90 this past Thanksgiving. Wow. And he is so interesting and so much fun. And when I speak on the book and he's in town or we're in the same city together, I always have Leroy come and speak to the audience because he is so genuine and That's so great. gorgeous. You know, he's wonderful. So Joe says to Leroy, now remember, Joe was the idea guy, right? But he wasn't the he wasn't the guy that executed the ideas. Leroy was that guy. So between the two of them, 
they made an insane pair, right? And to find each other when they were only in their 20s was incredible. So one day, Joe says to Leroy, Leroy, we need some cheeses. Go find me some cheese. Just go anywhere. I don't care where you go. Joe, Leroy goes to Europe and he finds some cheese. Says, wow, this is really different. He and his wife, Lisa, are, you know, they're tasting cheeses all over the place. They found a wonderful cheese. They bring it back to the United States. They package it up the way they want to. Remember, the United States can only regulate American products, right? They cannot regulate foreign products. So Joe's thought was, let's go bring in foreign products, right? Like the wine, the Chateau Lafitte, right? right? And so he brings in this cheese. He gets to package. People are falling in love. They're going crazy for this cheese. This cheese, he was able to package and sell for less than what the grocery stores were selling Velveeta. And do you know what this cheese is called? It's called Brie. That is amazing. And I was thinking as you were telling that story, it also fit in nicely with the pillars that you talked about. It was differentiation. Yes. It was price. It was, you know, each of the different things. So and beautifully. It's it's kind of cool to see the, the four pillars, you know, are fine to say, but actually came into play during the ex execution. So he he was the one who first started importing Brie to the United States. Yeah. And a big, yeah. In fact, there was a, there was a period where he was the largest brie importer in the world. And so that was really interesting. You know, there's another little, you know, I love these little sort of these little vignettes, these little stories, because they sort of bring home his concepts, you know, down to earth. And one of them was another kind of cheese, but customers back in the seventies, do you remember, do you remember where everybody had one of those, those cheese melting pots for fondue? Yeah, fondue pot. Fondue, yeah. Uh, so everybody wanted, you know, Swiss cheese. And he said, well, I can't carry Swiss cheese. They're made here. They're regulated. How can I carry Swiss cheese? So he calls Leroy, go find me some cheese. Go find <laughs> me some Swiss cheese. Figure out how we can sell Swiss cheese because there was a huge demand for it. So Leroy goes back and he, he goes to the Swiss cheese manufacturer and the guy takes him on the cheese tour and they've got that big pot and he's stirring and stirring. And, and so the heat is coming up from the middle of this pot and the bubbles are coming up in the center and around the edges, it's not boiling, right? It's because the heat is just in the center, but the guy is, you know, putting something into the, the bubbling cheese, pulls it out and pours it into something that's going to cool really quickly and solidify the cheese before the bubbles can escape. And that's why Swiss cheese has holes, right? Oh, wow. Okay. And then he would take all that. There's a big thick layer around the outside that wasn't boiling. And he would take and put that in a different container. And, and he would do this. And Leroy said, is there something wrong with that other cheese? And the guy says, no. Leroy says, what do you do with that? He says, well, we sell it to what we call our B markets, you know, schools, whatever. And Leroy says, there's nothing wrong with it. And the guy says, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And Leroy said, well, why do you call it B market? And he said, because customers only want Swiss, they want holes in their Swiss cheese. They don't want Swiss cheese without holes. And Leroy got to thinking about it. And he said, can we buy it? The guy said, heck yeah. Out to California comes the trains full of Swiss cheese with no holes in it. When it comes <laughs> out here, they package it up. They package it up, put the Trader Joe's label on it, and they come up with a new name for it. And they called it Closed Eye Baby Swiss. And it sold like hotcakes. You know, again, pillars of differentiation, right? 
That is, that is, look, you use very early on, you use the word genius, and that is coming through loud and clear. And, you know, it's funny, because I was thinking as you were saying, you know, what's the term? Factory seconds on cheese, you know, and it wasn't even that it was top quality, it just didn't have the holes. That is it just wasn't. Yeah, it just Yeah, you know, so it's like, how can how can we be creative? And if you think about whether you're selling insurance, or, you know, making shoes, whatever your product or services are, is are you know if, if you can think of ways to sort of differentiate yourself from your competition and you know i and, and as you know i i also write i'm in the travel industry and so that has got me thinking a lot since i worked with joe on this book is i am inundated with differentiation always trying to find ways to differentiate my product and i and i love it I love that everything that I do is different from anybody else that's in my business. And as time goes on, I'll keep coming up with more, just like Joe did. I love that. And I'd love to ask you a little bit about more specifically about what you're doing with the travel business. But if I can, just a few more questions. Oh, of course. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to change the topic. No, 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 no. I, I, I appreciate it very much. And I'm looking forward to sharing that. But obviously, such is the book that you've co-written that it would have been surprising if it didn't influence you, you know, in, in some way and just knowing Joe and learning from Joe and that sort of thing. I just wanted to touch a little bit for those of the listeners who are in the employee ownership field and tie it into some of the things you mentioned Leroy being the very first employee and he figures very prominently through the book. He does. And, and Joe was very generous with the credit of those who helped become Trader Joe's. And also I got the sense that he didn't suffer fools gladly. You know, that uh, yes. did not. people should really check out the book. But for example, one of the unions, Farmers Union out in California, decided to make an example for all of the grocery stores. And this will tie into my question about the employees. So they chose to pick it Trader Joe's. But it's at a time where Joe's philosophy was very pro-employee. Yes. And so with Leroy, and if we can just chat a little bit, but I'd like our listeners to know, Joe had set up actual profit sharing where he gave stock to the initial employees and all of them were shareholders in the company because he believed, and this is 20 years before the United States had ESOPs and employee ownership, he believed that those who were making things happen should have a share of the earnings. But what I found remarkable, especially for the time, and it's the mirror image, if you will, to the customers that he thought were overeducated and underpaid. My understanding from the book that salaries in the early days, and by the way, Trader Joe's, the company today still pays higher than industry standards, but Joe took the average median income in California, not for the grocery industry, but the average median income for the total economy. And that's what he paid his employees. And it really allowed them to be much better paid than much of their competitors. Have I got that right? Yes. And which is why it was kind of difficult and it has been difficult all through the years for unions to come in and, and you know, uh, infiltrate the, the business, if I can say it that way. But all the way back in the beginning, when Joe was trying to grow and he did not believe in debt. It, in, in the way that he got funding for growth is he went to his vendors, you know, he went to Ador Farms and said, okay, I'll give you your dairy business if you give me the loans that I need to, you know, expand my business. And he went to his employees and said, hey, guys, 
you know, let's talk about you guys owning this company and, and let's expand this together. And, and, you know, the single most important part of his company all the way up until the day he died was his employees. He had the most incredible respect and admiration for his employees. And because of that, he garnered such loyalty from them. I have never known so many people that are almost viciously loyal to Joe. And now they're all elderly as well. And and many of them have gone their own way and they had different careers along the way. And and I've never spoken to anybody that that just anybody that that you know had worked their way up into Trader Joe's into a management or an executive position that just didn't have total faith and respect for Joe because that's what he gave them. And it actually warmed my heart. And I say this very sincerely, but for all the work that I do now, one of the final things in the book is, is Joe had said that he regretted in the late 70s, he wasn't able to do the transaction that would have turned it into an ESOP. And mm -hmm. that, that one of his very few regrets was not having been able to turn over the business to the employees. Yes, yes. And he knew, you know, he saw some e economic issues coming in the future. He knew he was going to need help and he didn't want, you know, he didn't have the ability to put that together. So he went to the Albrecht family in Germany and sold the company to the Albrecht. But, but he stayed on, you know, he stayed on for 10 more years after that and continued to run the business his way. And but part of the agreement was that they that they keep his model intact. And, you know, I, it was like a three page agreement that he sold the whole company on. You know, it was he was that guy. He wasn't a big, you know, let's involve you know a whole team of 97 lawyers and take years to do this and spend a fortune on it. He was still the handshake and the hug kind of guy. Patty, just to let you know, when I and I've referenced it a couple of times, but when I visited the local Trader Joe's, and I think I was either ready to record the mini cast or I'd already recorded it, but I hadn't dropped yet. And I just wanted to, got a photo there, et cetera, et cetera. And there was somebody there that I'm going to say assistant manager, and that's not the titles that they use, but mm. he was stocking shelves. And one of the things that, that resonates with employee ownership is everybody there has multiple tasks based on what needs to be done. And yes. today, but so I said, you know, hey, I'm doing this podcast and I'm just curious, got a couple questions for you. Tell me about your job. Loves it. And this is somebody in 2023. Loves it. Best job that he's ever worked uh, at. He actually travels, I think, almost 100 miles because he wanted to open the new store. We have a relatively new Trader Joe's. It's been open a little bit less than a year. So he wanted to come down and be part of that. Their, their scheduling is four days on, three days off or something like that. So he gets a lot of personal time. But he said that the Albrecht family still is the owners and they still don't interfere, that it's run right. out of the folks in the United States and they still have free reign to the company as, as they As far speak. as I know, that is correct. Mm -hmm. And the Albrecht family, by the way, without going too far afield, these folks know retail. There are branches of the family that actually own the Aldi grocery stores as well. So that's so actually these guys. So, yeah. All right. So the way that worked was, let's see, when Joe sold the company to Theo Albrecht and his family, Theo eventually got old and passed away. But he left he left the company to his sons, his sons and their children. Things are kind of they get a little bit fragmented, but they they create two companies out of that. And it's called Aldi North and Aldi South. 
Aldi North is the company that owns Trader Joe's now. And Aldi South is the company that owns the Aldi stores that are, that are you know, everywhere that you see. And they own literally tens of thousands of grocery stores in Europe. They're the largest grocer in Europe. That is, that is great. And I appreciate the clarification, but it just shows that to this day, and this is really hard in business and employee ownership. We talk about legacy an awful lot, but Joe, your Joe, his legacy lives on to this day, not just with his name on the store, but so much that the stores are doing is what he started in lots of different ways. And indeed, the grocery industry still does a lot of things that Joe had had started. Let me, if I may, Patty, and then we'll transition over to the work that you're doing now. Let me share with the listeners, because you only gave a, a brief mention in the book to the ESOP transaction that didn't happen. But having spent seven years as an ESOP trustee, I got it completely. Joe was ready to make a, a change. Joe was ready to sell his business. Joe wanted to sell it to the employees, and he actually got all of the experts involved to do an ESOP transaction. And this is just me putting flesh on what was in the book, because it was very brief in the book. But at this time, we had mentioned California. You mentioned earlier that California was heavily regulated in certain industries. Milk deregulation was coming on its way, and very importantly, wine deregulation. The, a lot of the rules that allowed Joe to be the number one retailer of, of certain wines and certain alcohols, that deregulation was coming as well. So they brought in the valuation advisors to get the value of the company, and it became too speculative because of the different government changes that were anticipated. So it would have been, in, in my days as an ESOP trustee, it would have been, hey, come back in two, three, four years, things will be more settled. But in Joe's case, he was ready to go, and there was no sense of when he'd be able to get a good valuation. But that is my reading between the lines. That is what caused him to reach out to the Elbrecht family. Wow. And, and that, you know, that, that was an area that, that I don't have a lot of, of knowledge. So you just actually filled in a couple blanks for me. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I have seen that happen so many times and it's very routine and it very much was to employee ownership's loss. You know, the, they weren't able to do that. And by the way, if somebody came right now, and I'll just give you an absurd example because life is crazy, but if somebody came right now and said, hey, let's look at making Twitter employee owned, the trustees would be like, yeah, there's way too much stuff going on. Can't make that happen at all. But the regulatory stuff had that real impact. And, and got to tell you that I was a little wistful with the, in the face of employee ownership in the United States would have been a lot different if someone as prominent as Trader Joe's, you know, had become an employee-owned company. That would have been really great. Right. So, Pat, your primary passion, your primary interests are travel. I know that you've written travel books, but tell us everything that you do in the space. Let's spend a few minutes getting to know you. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I spent, well, between, I don't know, 16, 20 years on the director's council of the Coatsen Institute of Archaeology at UCLA. Wow. And I traveled for all those years with archaeologists and every kind of earth scientist you can think of in search of lost and ancient cultures all over every little dark, deep corner of the world. Wow. You know, one of the talks I do now is called Indiana Jones in High Heels. <laughs> it's really it's really about sort of, you know, a California dilettante mom and in, in the world of archaeology, just sort of getting sucked into it without being an archaeologist. 
And after, you know, 15, 20 years, you kind of get really good at a, at a few things. I got really good at being able to parse history. You can give me anybody's history and I can take it apart and put it back together in little nuggets that make it real easy to get. And that's what I did, by the way, you know, I, the first 10 years, the first 10 years of my life, you would ask me, you know, sort of how, how the building blocks, but the first 10 years I spent in tech and, and it, you know, I was always in marketing and writing in tech. I've been writing my whole life for everybody that I ever worked for, but IBM hired me because I can do that. I could take something out of engineering, a concept, break it apart and put it back together so that marketing can market it and sales can, you know, bring it forth for you know little tiny chunks for for the consumer that was going to use the technology. And so this was really kind of the same thing for me. I can take a complex history, break it apart, put it back together and make it not only easy to swallow but make it kind of fun and entertaining. And but I also got to be a really good traveler. And I every every time I the wheels hit the tarmac somewhere in the world, I was always on the search for a book that I can read Quickly, I can get to the bottom of it, understand who the local culture was, where did they come from, who are they, you know, what is their background, why are they the way they are, something that could allow me to hit my, you know, get, you know, just hit the ground running whenever I landed. And that book wasn't there. The travel books are out there. They're sort of limited in the surface of today. Nobody tells you anything deeper. So travel books today are really about, you know, where to stay, how to eat you know, eat and drink your way through your vacation, how to speed right. travel, right? 14 destinations in eight days. Right. That's what the cruise ships brought us. And and having so much time out in the world of archaeology, I have a real penchant for ancient, you know, ancient destinations. And so one of the coolest, you know, my two favorite ancient destinations in the world are Egypt and Italy. So I thought, okay, well, I'm a writer. I can do this. Let me write the books that I think are missing. And boy, are they now, now this is where the differentiation comes in, right? You know, how can I make this different? And I found a thousand ways to make them different. I love that. I had shared with you, we had a phone call last week to set up this recording and I had shared with you what I love about what you're trying to do. And it resonated when you talked about how so many travel books today are just the, how do you jam pack everything in and, and, and that sort of thing that Boy, probably almost 15 years ago, my now ex-wife and I were were planning a, a trip for, you know, maybe a special anniversary or whatever it was. And we decided that we wanted to go to Italy. And this is a lot to do with my makeup and my ADHD and, you know, certain other. We couldn't figure out how to do it. There were so many different options and they were all just which bus company and trips and and, and there was nothing that allowed us to see a differentiation that I ended up just getting so overwhelmed by the sameness of everything that was out there that we ended up spending the money in some cooler way, you know, or different way, I should say, not cooler. But so that resonated with me of what you're trying to do of make things stand out and not just be the, the cruise ship. We're going to pack all this stuff in in three days. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I came up with a way of indexing each of the cities that I write about. And, and surprisingly, that's something that nobody's done anywhere in the world. And I'm not sure why, but, you know, I took, I took, um, you know, categories of the cities and uh, color coded them and says, okay, well, these are all the churches in the city and these are the museums in the city. Here's the ancient sites. Right. And I listed those in the book. And then I thought, what if I take that to the next level and index it? you know, in a way in a big circle, right? 
and everything is still color coded by a category. And can you see that? So it's like I, churches. Listeners, it almost looks like a game board that you are holding up. Everything is broken into different sections and Bless your heart, there's a spinner in the middle there's of it. There's a spinner it. in the middle of it, right? So this is just if you want to surprise yourself. But even without the spinner, it is the best categorized index of Rome. So this is 101 sites instead of top 10, top 10, top 10, where everybody flocks to, and then nobody knows what else to do in Rome. This is over 100 sites in Rome. So basically, you, you can just say, hey, I want today to be a church day or a museum day, or, you know, I just want to do all the underground sites today. And you can do it that way. You can see a city by a category that's interesting to you. Or if you find something that you like, let's say you find a church or a museum, it'll have a little number, right? So there's a little number here. So you take that little number and you turn it over. There's the map of Rome and all the little numbers are on the back. So now you know where it's located, right? And say, well, gee, if my hotel is over here and the number I'm looking for is over here, what are all these other possible things I could be seeing on my way home tonight after seeing the site that I want to see? Nobody tells you that, right? But then you take that little number and it turns out that's the page number in the book. So that oh, describes wow. Wow. <laughs> super hey, easy. For our listeners, Patty, you're going to provide us with some images of the board and, and if there's anything else you'd like to share, but we'll have them on our website in the show notes for this episode. But it really is cool and ties together. I'll be honest with you, and I, I, I didn't say it gratuitously, but I said, boy, my last trip, you know, fell apart from the ADHD and from the spinners to the map on the back, and the spinners <laughs> isn't right, to the different categories and then the map on the back. Yeah. And said it, it cross reference to the page numbers. I like really saw the, the simplistic beauty of it. And I think that is just absolutely ingenious. Thank you. I'd say this is a little of Joe that rubbed off, right? <laughs> you, got some, you got some pillar work going on. So there was a direct connection to your love of archaeology. You know, you mentioned that that led to Italy being the source of your focus. Yes. How many books or products do you have about that? Well, I have I have the main travel books for the three main cities in Italy, which is Rome, Florence, and Venice. And they all come with, you know, the spinner board, you know, packaged in the back of the book. And the spinner board is, is comes free. If you buy the ebook, of course, it doesn't come with the spinner board. So you, you need to order the spinner board separately. And it's like $9. It's cheap. And then, you know, I made all these other little tiny books. If you don't want to carry around a big, heavy travel book, you know, there's women artists. I'm just getting ready to release a book called it's the backstories it's it's a it's a book on art history for all of us that didn't take art history in college so i think you know we all go to museums but how do you look at stuff how do you how do you know what you're looking at i didn't take art history in my whole life so i never really knew that until i studied the history of florence and boom it hit me all at once what art history was so i thought you know what i'm going to take this all apart and put it back together. And for all the people that didn't take art history, I'm going to write a book about art history, the Renaissance and Baroque art history, which is the founding of Western art and, and make it super easy. And it's going to be the backstories and those vignettes and trivia and fun ways to learn about art history. And I'm going to call it behind the fig leaf. I love that. And I'm, guess who's on the cover? David. So wearing a fig leaf, of course. And so, so that you can sell the book in all 50 states, unfortunately. Uh -huh. Yes, I know. I'm having trouble with that book, the book cover in several places. I might have to 
make some changes. Although I really don't want to because it's, it's you know, David is considered, well, the, the, the single most recognizable sculpture in the world, in world, in the history of the world. Pa Patty, very careful here on the website. I generally don't talk politics at all. And partly to be an employee ownership is to understand that the more conservative folks love creating more shareholders and those on the left love the fact that wealth is not concentrated in a single owner's you know, money. So we have friends on all side of it. But I'm actually, I was making what I thought would have been just a smart alecky little throwaway line. I am discouraged that you have to rethink the cover art because this is art, this has been art that has been around for centuries. And to me, it shows the absurdity of the extents to what the social arguments in this country have been that David can't go just be David as we have all seen him. You know, I yeah, don't I know. think that I had any difficulties arising from in high school seeing the statue, you know, a picture of the statue of David. Yeah. So, you know, but at the same time, the work that you're doing and just to bring it away from that, the work that you're doing, just reinforcing the art for art's sake is very important, you know, when arts are, are sort of generally under attack. So to do it in the travel vogue, yet continue to support, you know, art that's been such an important part of world history is is good for you for, for you. that work. Uh, you. And, it, you know, it's funny, I always say that, you know, I don't let explicit politics come into the podcast, but then I say things like, we means we in employee ownership, you know, so you get right. the vibe of, of, you know, where I am. But thank you very much for that. So tell us a little bit, do you have a website where people, where we would direct people to get your products? Just tell us how would people find you? Well, I think the real key is understanding how to spell my last name, because once they can do that, they can find me anywhere. But Amazon is a really good place to type in my name. You can go to my own website, which is pattycivilary.com. And also... I'm under Patty Civilari, under Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, everywhere. And yeah, I, you know, I, I have to say, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a really wonderful challenge moving through, you know, these sort of decades of my life and, and watching how things progress. And, you know, I want to know what am I going to do in my next decade? You and me both. And, 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 and Patty, I'm, I'm thinking you and I both have a future on TikTok. Yes. Uh, Got to figure out how to make it work. You know uh, what? I, I would be open to that. Give me a call. Seriously. It is such my luck. And I've done a variety of things, but a friend of mine happened to be the friend who I shopped for at Trader Joe's, but she started sending me TikToks in November or December. And she's just absolutely delightful. And they're puppy dogs and they're comedians. And, you know, I understand <laughs> that there's a lot of dark space out there, but I'm like, I'd really love a way to get a presence on TikTok, knowing full well that if I got a presence on TikTok, the government would shut it down because that's yeah, how you're probably is. right. So Patty, in addition to that, and you mentioned Amazon and, you know, obviously a good resource. If you don't mind, I would ask our listeners to also consider looking you up at the website for Riven Bookstore. It's an employee owned bookstore and we really do try to keep things in the family. So we we share that there are bookstores that, you know, are owned by the employees and that fits into the vibe that we're oh, I love that. So I just wanted to share with folks and and we can reach out about your books and let them know that we're talking about it. But 
for all of the needs, you know, Riven is employee-owned and Amazon is not. But the important You're right, boy, are you for, right? I can just say things like it's not employee-owned. I don't have to go into all the craziness and all the Michigas. No. It's not employee-owned. So, uh, Patty, becoming Trader Joe's, and again, I said this before I had any idea that you'd be on the podcast, it is a wonderful book on business and someone influential in business, and it is so approachable and you do such a good job as the co-author of the book. So I heartily recommend anybody. And, and, and the other thing about employee ownership is if you work at an employee-owned company, you're pretty much becoming an entrepreneur by designation. You're Absolutely. A so if you want to learn, and, and it's specifically the grocery industry, you know, but a lot of the things, you know, manufacturers are making, making things to sell, you know, so a lot of the lessons in the book can be applied in lots of different industries, but it's also just a, a really good read. So well done, Patty. Well done. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm happy I saw your post on LinkedIn. Well, I appreciate that you did that. We were happy to tag you and I've seen you on Instagram as well. And I do want to recommend that people follow you on LinkedIn, follow you on Instagram. You mentioned that you're on Facebook as well. And it is really great. And I'm not quite sure how I'll work out an employee-owned aspect to when your next book comes out to, you know, a, a, a travel book, but I will do my best. And maybe you'd be kind enough to come back on again in the future and talk about some other oh, stuff. Oh, I'd be delighted. You know, I would. Absolutely. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. My thanks very sincerely to Patty Civilari. I hope you will check out Becoming Trader Joe's. It is still ranked on Amazon almost two years after it's come out. And that says something. And it's just a great read and then reflect for a, a, a moment or two about how employee ownership would have changed if Joe had uh, been yeah. able to uh, go in that direction. And again, it meant a lot to me that he wished he had gone in that direction. Patty, we'll have you on again soon. Thank you so much, Brett. Have a lovely day and cheers to your success. Thank you so much. Thank and you. thank you to the listeners. I appreciate you very much. This, is Brett, this is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at EO Podcast Network and on Twitter at ESOP Podcast. This podcast has been produced by Brett Kiesling for the EO Podcast Network. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Branding and marketing by Bitsy Plus Design. And I'm Bitsy McCann.